We're in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 14. The book of Revelation, of course, is well known in terms of the letter seven churches. We've dealt with that. That's the most important part to all of us, chapters 2 and 3. From chapter 4 on, it's yet future. We have John transported to heaven and seeing from that vantage point the uh, an amplification, really, in what the, what the biblical prophets would call the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period about which the Bible says so much. And we saw how the Lamb receives the seven-sealed book and opens it, and we have thus ushered into the main drama of the book of Revelation, the seven seals, the seventh seal leading to the seven trumpets. And ultimately, we're about to enter chapters 15 and 16. We're going to have the seven bowls of wrath poured out, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, seven bowls, well known as major, major elements of the book of Revelation. And as you probably have gathered by now, those aren't the only pattern of sevens. There are probably over a hundred patterns of sevens in the book of Revelation, some of them much more subtle. One of the things that we also notice, though, in each pattern of seven, there are always six and then a change of subject, a little parenthetical something or other, and then the seventh. That's sort of a pattern. Some of those parenthetical things are a chapter or more long, and others are just a verse or two. But we notice there's a very designed structure to the book. Now, when we got to chapters 11, 12, and 13, we quickly realized we're in a parenthesis as such, with the two witnesses and, and of course, the, the personages that were ushered in with chapters 12 and 13. The woman, the man-child, uh, the Michael, and the dragon, and so forth. Chapter 14 continues sort of a hiatus before getting into chapters 15 and 16, which will deal with this, probably the heaviest part of the book. It's a heavy book anyway. Chapters 15 and 16 are the big ones, the big wrap-up. Chapter 14 actually includes seven key events in it. In fact, you're going to discover there are seven specific angels. Six and then one voice, which I presume to be an angel, fulfilling the pattern. But the point is, chapter 14 is kind of a strange chapter because on the one hand, it's seven key things that happen, but you'll discover as you study the whole book of Revelation, chapter 14 appears to be sort of a table of contents for the rest of the book. It's going to give you a preview glimpse of what's coming. And so uh, don't attempt to try to reconcile it chronologically to the other events. You'll discover as you really look at it and what's coming that it is like a, a preview, a, a, a previews of coming attractions, so to speak. It is sort of an interlude and a hiatus. Of all the chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 14 is one of the heaviest. And I should really say probably it's heavy because it anticipates 15 and 16. The next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, are very, very solemn chapters. And it's ironic to me that we happen to be addressing this on the eve of Yom Kippur, the most solemn occasion on, on God's calendar uh, as ordained in the seven feasts of Moses. But in any case, let's jump in and uh, see what the Lord would have for us here. In chapter 14, verse 1, John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, this, of course, um, is notable for many reasons. First of all, the lamb, we know who that is. That was well identified all through the book. It's one of the titles, perhaps the most glorious title, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And we're about to enter into uh, outpouring of the wrath of God. That's what's going to make this chapter and what's coming so heavy. Here it mentions the only place in the book of Revelation where Mount Zion is mentioned. And with the Lamb stands the 144,000. Where are they standing? On the earth at Mount Zion. On the one hand. On the other hand, the, the 144,000 are still on the earth. The Lamb hasn't really returned yet. And this leads to all kinds of structural questions. We tend to think of heaven as remote, somewhere way out there. And yet if we recognize that we're, we're, you and I are limited to a three-dimensional perception of space, when in fact even our physical existence involves ten dimensions we now know, the possibility that heaven is in effect another dimension of our present existence right here may help us understand what's really going on here. These 144,000, of course, we recognize as having been introduced in chapter 7. These 144,000 have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is not the church, this is Israel. Many people see these as 144,000 commandos. These are specially ordained, specially supernaturally protected people that have a major role uh, at this time. 
It's interesting that we had him introduced in chapter 7. Here in chapter 14, we sort of have a, a wrap-up, a report card in a sense. And uh, it's interesting that there's not 143,999. There's 144,000. In other words, none of them have been lost. And I think that's interesting. You may recall that Jesus in John 17, when he prays to the Father, in that very intimate passage in John, can say to his Father, of those that you've given me, I have lost none. Now here, there he's referring more broadly than just these 144,000. But I think that's exciting because there's many of us that get concerned about security and such. And our security in Christ is perfect because our security depends on his faithfulness, not ours. So as long as you're in Christ, praise God. Now these have come through the tribulation period miraculously. And there's an interesting analogy that many people draw from Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, you may recall, Nebuchadnezzar was on an ego trip, built this gold image, and forced, under penalty of death, all his subjects to worship the image. As you recall, that, that was the occasion that... Uh, Daniel's three friends, going by their Babylonian names, which are better known than their Hebrew names, they had Hebrew names too, but most of us know them, thanks to the Negro spiritual, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that, of course, celebrates the whole events of, of uh, Daniel 3. But as you all know, uh, they refuse to bow down, and Nebuchadnezzar has his officers throw them in this fiery furnace. And if you may recall the CBS special that we did a few years ago, a lot of that technology and, and archaeological discoveries have confirmed that whole business. But the point is, you all know the story where, miraculously, uh, these three are preserved through that fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's flabbergasted. He looks down there, and he sees not three, but four down there. And uh, commands them to come out, and we find that they are not burned. The only thing that burned were their bonds. And uh, the officers who threw them in were burned, strangely, because he heated up seven times higher and all that business. Anyway, many people see in that whole episode of Daniel 3 a parallel to end-time prophecy, because Nebuchadnezzar is certainly the ruler of the world at that time. He creates an image of himself that he forces people to worship under penalty of death. That echoes, of course, uh, Revelation 13 and other passages. It's interesting that uh, in the uh, Scripture, uh, the fire of judgment is often used as an idiom of the tribulation. And here we have these three Jewish young men preserved miraculously through that fiery furnace. So many people see a parallel. Uh, many people see them as a type or a model or a foreshadowing of the 144,000 miraculously preserved through this very, very difficult period that the scripture in Daniel 12 calls the Great Tribulation and Jesus quotes it, thus uh, uh, underlining the label for it in Matthew 24. Of course, one of the things you want to study when you study Daniel 3 and if you explore those kind of parallels, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is where was Daniel while all that was going on? The historical answer is that he probably was away on affairs of state, which caused, in fact, his enemies to seek the opportunity to try to nail his three buddies. What it means allegorically, or as, uh, I should say as a model or a foreshadowing, many people have different conjectures. Many people are attracted to the view that maybe Daniel type represents the church. He was away prior to the whole occasion. In any case, those are speculations, kind of interesting. question is, who preserves you and I today? These 144,000 are miraculously preserved by being sealed in chapter 7, miraculously. How are you preserved? Who preserves you today? Jesus Christ does. And do a study of Zion. Just in the Psalms is enough. David captures this area from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel 5. And Zion, of course, becomes an idiom for Jerusalem. Mount Zion is a specific location, but it becomes idiomatic, of course, for the city of David, Ophel specifically, but Jerusalem a little more broadly, uh, connotatively. And uh, it's interesting, you and I are entering the 3,000th year of Jerusalem. Major celebration this year in Israel over that. If you study the issue of Zion as an element in God's plan, you're in for some startling discoveries. First of all, if you confine your study just to the Psalms, you'll discover there are at least 30 Psalms that specifically deal with Mount Zion. In fact, in Psalm 20, you'll find the deliverance of these 144,000 expressly described. If you go to Psalm 48, you'll discover there's the kings of the earth are going to gather against it. Sounds like Armageddon, doesn't it? That's coming in the next few chapters. Uh, you also notice there in the idiom of that psalm, you'll find there's a woman in travail. It almost echoes Revelation 12, if you will. We get to Psalm 74. You'll notice there are singers there that have been purchased 
just like you'll discover uh, the 144,000 will speak of themselves here. In Psalm 76, you'll find out that the kings of the earth are going to be cut off from this attack. In Psalm 102, a set time for all of this is referred to. In Psalm 110, we have even Melchizedek. He was the predecessor even to the Jebusites for that piece of ground. In Genesis 14, Abraham offers tithes to Melchizedek, a guy who has just a few verses who would disappear into oblivion if it wasn't for a couple of things. Psalm 110 and the writer of the book of Hebrews, which makes a big point of the uniqueness of Melchizedek and his priesthood. Because his priesthood precedes, of course, Abraham and thus precedes Moses and the Levitical system. Very interesting issue that's there that the book of Hebrews becomes the primary commentary on. And it speaks, of course, as the rod of iron and the strength to rule and all of that. And in Psalm 132, we find the Lord has chosen Zion, as mentioned four times. God has chosen Zion. Not the UN, not the Palestinians, God has. And when they mess around with that, they're asking for big trouble, and we're going to see what's going to happen here shortly. In Psalm 133, we find Israel united, because Hermon is mentioned, which is north, and Zion from the south, and on it goes. In Psalm 137, we find Babylon, not only Zion mentioned, but Babylon is destroyed, just as we'll find out in verse 8 of chapter 14 here shortly, and of course as the Lamb reappears. In 146, Psalm 146 deals with Zion and admonishes them not to trust in princes. You see, the big problem is yet to come. The Oslo Accord is just the beginning. The real problem that Israel is going to do is they're going to trust, rather than the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to trust in a coming world leader for their security. And our weakening of Israel and putting them in this predicament is one of the contributing factors in that thing. And that's exactly what Isaiah calls the covenant with hell. And that's, that's going to lead to the treaty that Daniel defines the 70th week of Daniel around, namely that seven year enforcement period. So on it goes. It might be interesting, all of this is summarized twice. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 2. You'll find the same language in Micah chapter 4, the first four verses. It's pretty much the same either way. Let's go just as long as we start. Let's take the Isaiah 2 passage. We'll take Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. We'll read just uh, 2, 3, and 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. That's, of course, millennial yet coming. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, he shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And on it goes. And you'll find the identical language in Micah, chapter 4, first four, four verses. A little summary of this, if you will. So, it's very interesting that we have an express commitment that God has given Jesus Christ. One of your most basic prophetic passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 2. We've gone to several places, we've gone several times. Let's just pop back there again and note particularly verse 6. Take a look at Psalm 2, the second Psalm. In fact, let's just, it's short enough, let's just refresh our memory. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Rhetorical question. We're seeing a dialogue, or I should say a trialogue between the, the uh, Trinity here. The kings of the earth, the answer is, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There are two persons of the three mentioned expressly right there. What, is the, what are the kings of the earth going to do? They take, they're, they're taking counsel against God. Can you imagine that? I could never imagine that as I studied this maybe uh, some decades ago. But as I watch our current administration, the arrogance of leaders, it's amazing. I think uh, Kissinger made the remark, the, uh, the power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. More power creates an appetite for even more power. And you see that occur in corporate life. You see that especially occur in government life. And it's just amazing to see the arrogance and, and uh, ego of people which have uh, more power than they're capable of handling. Uh, verse 3, this is what they're saying. See, take counsel against the Lord and against the anointing. Saying, this is what the leaders are saying to themselves of the world. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. One of the things we're going to discover in the book of Revelation, God gives them what they want. 
See, the real ultimate fear that, we, that would scare us to death if we understood it is when God withdraws himself. It's really scary. Maybe verse 4. He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great displeasure. And verse 6 is the one that focuses on verse 14, what we just came, chapter 14, Revelation. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The God of the universe has ordained that Jesus Christ is going to rule the planet Earth from Zion. Has he ever done that? No. Has that promise ever been abrogated? No. It's a commitment. It's expressed. And it's amazing how many people just do not, even in the biblically sophisticated circles, don't understand the literalness and the promises and the commitment that God has made in which he's going to accomplish his purposes through the nation Israel, yet future. Now, there's a lot of conditioning that has to take place. And that's part of the, the drama we're going to see unfold called the time of Jacob's trouble. Because they're not ready to do that yet, but they will be. And it goes on, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Satan offered that to Christ on the temptations. Matthew 4, Luke 4, you know the temptations. The story. And uh, Satan offered Christ a shortcut. Christ never challenged his ownership, or I should say possession, of the nations. He said, I can give them to, they're given to me, I can give them to whoever I will. Worship me and they're yours. Jesus never challenged his ownership. Why? Because he purchased them on a cross 2,000 years ago. And his title deed is what he's opening with that seven-sealed book in chapter 4 or 5. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Now, in chapter 14, this is all going to be amplified because we're going to also talk about, before the chapter's over, those who don't put their trust in him, but rather trust in someone else. We'll see what comes up here. Okay, back to chapter 14. We're all the way down to verse 2. We're making good progress here. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Well, most of you, you can speculate who the voice is when you hear the voice of many waters and a great thunder. I don't think you get in a big error by assuming that's probably the Lord Jesus Christ because that was used of him in chapter 1 as an identity label. And the voice, the voice of the harpers harping with their harps. And you're probably tired of hearing my little remark. Uh, my daughter, of course, is very animal rights oriented. And I, uh, she's always worried about who's in heaven. She knows horses are in heaven because of chapter 19 of Revelation. I said, well, and obviously there are cats in heaven too. She says, really, Dad? I said, of course. Where else would they get the strings for the harps, you know? <laughs> That was the one occasion when my daughter almost hit me, and probably, probably justified. But we'll move on. Verse 3, And they sung, as it were, a new song. This is a new song. Before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now they sing a song that others cannot share. You've got a unique position. And from here you go to Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 144, Psalm 149, other places. The list will be in the notes uh, that apparently links to this. But uh, it's interesting that Psalm 107, first couple of verses, imply that only the redeemed, only the redeemed can really sing praises to him. And the, one of the questions I'm going to continue to ask you tonight is, do you? Do you sing praises to him? I don't mean just with us. You know, we have a little thing in the beginning and sometimes the end. We have some worship, as we call it. And that's great. But um, how many of you, when you're private, when you're driving the car by yourself, sing to him? Car's safe, you see. There's doesn't quite have the echo your shower does. That's the next one. Do you think he cares about the musical quality? But it's interesting that he delights in that. In fact, the, the scripture says he inhabits our praises. I mean, he, that's getting into it, if, I, if you excuse the, the vernacular. Do you praise him? Sometimes when I come home, when my wife's not expecting it, she can be vacuuming the house or whatever, and she has a tape with earphones. And she's singing away to the music that's on the earphones. I happened to walk into her once, and she didn't know I could hear all this. And uh, I almost cried. What be how beautiful that was. She was just praising her Lord. I got thinking at first, I thought, because I didn't want her to see, because I knew that she'd be embarrassed, because she didn't think anyone else was in the house. I just happened to walk in. But on the other hand, um, we don't do that enough. 
we have lots of free time when we're sort of private. Where we don't, we, we don't have we, those of us that are, uh, you know, if you're like me, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I'm pretty bad at that. It's not one of my gifts. At the same time, uh, how, how desperate it is that we don't praise him more? That's interesting. Now, by the way, I don't believe we are in this group. By the way, even though uh, we have been redeemed out of the earth in this world system, from John 17 and Philippians uh, 3 and so forth, these singers are already in heaven, which is kind of provocative. But I'm going to come to that issue in a few more verses. Let's us move on. Verse 4. These are they which are not defiled with with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now this business of these 144,000 being virgins has troubled a lot of people. Is that literal or is that figurative? And I, it's my personal uh, suspicion that it's both. It's interesting, they kept themselves for the Lord alone. Now, this makes no comment on our day. This makes no comment on our society. These are special times that are forthcoming. This is yet future under very weird conditions. You might be interested to know that Jeremiah, when he was on the threshold of the Babylonian captivity, you'll discover in Jeremiah chapter 16, the first four verses, he was forbidden to marry. It's also interesting that Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verse 19, when he, he presents uh, this uh, thing we call the Olivet Discourse. The four disciples came for a private briefing. He gave them a private briefing of his second coming. I don't believe Matthew 24 is directed to us. It's directed to this time. But he mentions that pray that your flight be uh, not in winter and so forth, not on the Sabbath day. He's talking to Jews. He also mentions there, woe to them that be nursing a child in those days. Is there anything wrong with nursing a child? No, you need to, and there's nothing wrong with raising kids. Nothing wrong with getting married. But he's pointing out that those days are going to have special ordeals. And these 144,000 were separated for special combat duty, in a spiritual combat sense. These are the Lord's commandos. But also, many people point out that this may not necessarily refer to just to uh, uh, virgins as you and I would think of it in the biological sense, uh, the ter- idolatry is labeled as fornication. And uh, keeping themselves chaste can be referring to their staying away from idol worship. And and one of your special places to get a little orientation to spiritual fornication, I think most of us, especially in our society, understand literal fornication. Uh, Spiritual fornication is is Ezekiel 16. We'll take the time here and put it in your notes. You can read it at your leisure. It's also interesting that the church is also described as a chaste version for Christ. Chaste as opposed to Jezebel. In 2 Corinthians 11.2 and Ephesians 5 verses 26 and 27 being examples of that idiom being applied to the church in a spiritual sense as a virgin bride of Christ. And in fact, in the contrast with Israel who is portrayed in Hosea and elsewhere as the idolatrous or unfaithful wife of Yahweh. So on the one hand, you have the unfaithful wife of uh, uh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you will, uh, in the Old Testament as Israel, and you have the virgin bride of Christ as an idiom for the church uh, in the New. Now these are the first fruits. Now these first fruits of this period, of course, is what I was dealing with. The first fruits were the very finest from what was an an expected harvest. The first fruits were imply more fruits coming, an expected harvest, and they are the very finest. And you might compare this to Romans 11, which describes Israel. Because you and I as Gentiles are grafted in by their rejection. If we're blessed by, our, by their rejection, how much more will be blessed when they get back in, is really the argument that Paul makes. Israel is going to be the centerpiece of, God, of the thousand-year reign called the millennial reign on the earth. And uh, that's something that many, many people uh, are, are unfortunately very blind to due to a lack of teaching in many quarters. It's very, very important as you read your Bible to make a careful distinction between Israel and the church. And don't fall into the trap of of confusing those two. Because it's very, very distinct. Now these 144,000, most commentators assume, are the brethren of Matthew 25. All the nations are going to be judged by the Lord when he returns as to how they treat his brethren. There are three people in Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats and his brethren. And you become sheep or goat nations by how they treated the brethren. I think the analogy is very similar to the Holocaust in Europe. The Netherlands particularly, among other nations, were particularly uh, uh, at risk the way they treated the Jews during the troubled times. 
I think we generally feel we've done pretty well. I think most people who study it feel we should have done a lot more. But the point is, nations can be measured even today by how they treated uh, uh, the Jews in that troubled time. But that's just a forerunner of what's coming. And that's what Jesus especially underlines in Matthew 25. Many people believe the brethren he's referring to there certainly is Israel, but may very well be these specific 144,000. In any case, verse 5, it continues, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. One of the things that they were not taken in with is the lie. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you may recall, Paul points out that this coming world leader, when he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, he promotes, in your King James it may say, a lie, in verse 11. If you look at the Greek, it's the lie. There's a very specific, outrageous lie that he promotes. Many scholars today believe that it's the lie of evolution. That certainly, we could even do a little study called Satan's Most Believable Lies. And certain evolution might, might head the list. And there are other things. The whole idea that you get to heaven by being good is also a common myth that people adhere to, not realizing that's one of Satan's uh, lies to mask and hide, obscure, if you will, the gospel. And uh, the language of psychology, of course, is the language of the new age and the new world that's coming. So all these things are lies. But the one that's in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, I believe is yet to come a specific lie that will be associated with this coming leader. And that's one of the things that these guys, these 144,000s, don't fall prey to. And uh, they are without fault before the throne of God because they are sinless? No, because they are clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb. Just as you and I are if we're in Christ. And the most exciting thing in my life is the realization that before the throne of God, God doesn't see me for what I've done. He sees me for what Christ has done that I have the joyous opportunity to be clothed with His righteousness, and you do too. It's available for the asking. The wedding garments were provided by the host, not the guest. And I'm glad that when we're there, we're provided His garments. If you're there in your own garments, you'll get thrown out. And uh, as the parable so clearly described. Well, that brings us down to verse 6, which is now introduces the first of seven angels. This angel has the eternal gospel, whatever that is. Verse uh, 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. I want you to notice who he's talking to. Those that dwell on the earth. Now, if you're reading that in general text, you say, well, that's everybody. Except if you've gotten used to the idiom of Revelation, you realize that term is used of those that dwell, that are associated with, that, that are preoccupied by, that are members of, citizens of planet earth. You and I hopefully are not. We're, we're, we're pilgrims passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. That term is a term, uh, what, a, what an attorney would call a term of art. It has a very specific uh, uh, denotation here. Notice that he flies in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel uh, to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth. And that includes every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, this gospel, first thing, most of us presume, when we, we use the term gospel as a cliché, most of us, we say the gospel. What's the gospel mean? Well, that's the good news. Where do you define it? First four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul says that the gospel I declared unto you, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the denotative definition of the gospel you and I um, uh, grasp and claim and, and extol in our lives. That's a gospel of grace. You should understand, though, the term gospel or evangel is good news. It's a term meaning a message, a good message. That is our incredibly good message. That is the message Christ has commissioned you and I to proclaim in our day, indeed. But you should also understand that there are other gospels in the Scripture. First of all, there's several times there are false gospels. Uh, Paul speaks of another gospel and calls it anathema. He does that in 2 Corinthians 11.4 and Galatians 1.6, where he speaks of a false gospel, a wrong gospel, a, quote, good news that really ain't good news, if you will. You'll also discover that the Greek uh, evangel uh, is used of Gabriel announcing the birth of John the Baptist is used in that, in Luke 1.19. Uh, the angelic hosts that speak to the shepherds in the fields, remember the fields of Boaz and Ruth, that they, that uh, where the announcement was made. That's also a, a, a gospel. The news to Paul of the spiritual growth of the Thessalonian church in First Thessalonians three six is a gospel. In other words, the word gospel can mean a exciting new message. It isn't necessarily what we speak of the gospel as as a as a as our primary mandate here. 
The seventh angel, and you may, may recall in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, the seventh angel said, the mystery of God is finished, and so forth. That was a, 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 the term evangel, the Greek term for gospel is there. And the preaching of the kingdom, in Matthew 24, verse 14, and there are other examples. So the word gospel, when you say, we are thus entitled to ask, okay, well, what gospel is this angel preaching? Is it the gospel of grace? The gospel of grace is what you and I are commissioned to proclaim. We are That gospel is proclaimed by men. This gospel is proclaimed by angels. Why? Well, for one reason, they're indestructible. It's interesting that even the two witnesses in chapter 11 were finally killed, right? It's interesting that here the gospel, this gospel, whatever it is, we'll see in a minute, is proclaimed by an angel. And verse 7 says, and he says, saying with a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of the waters. Now, we don't uh, deny that those issues, but that's not our emphasis. You go down the streets of your town and say, fear God, judgment is, you know, is now here. You won't get much of a draw, you know. No, it's always, it's not the righteousness of God, it's his grace that attracts him. When, when you saw the burning bush... The burning bush was the acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert, the symbol of sin in fire being consumed and not consumed. In, in flames are not consumed. That's what drew Moses. He was puzzled by that. It's interesting that even in the idioms of that uh, phenomenon there in, in the early chapters of Exodus, uh, we have a symbol of God's grace. That was what attracted Moses. It's always God grace, God's grace, not His righteousness. He is righteous. Don't misunderstand me. But it's his, it's his grace that draws us. And so, in any case, this gospel, if we study it carefully, seems to be creation-oriented. You see, it's not uh, uh, dependent upon revealed truth per se. It's talking about, if you will, here the uh, uh, worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and fountains of waters. You know, there's no more disgusting, disgraceful um, embracement than there is of uh, evolution. You can understand people having confusion or doubts maybe about the scripture if they haven't studied it, but you can't, you can't imagine people rationally embracing this idea that we're all here by accident and so forth. It's just, I mean, when you really study that and get into the background, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's manifestly disprovable by many, many methods. And, of course, we've, we've dealt with that in so many ways in our briefing package. I won't get into it here now. But the point is, it's interesting that the primary uh, indictment uh, comes, if you will, from Psalm 19 and Romans 1. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. And on it goes. If you read Psalm 19, it lays it out in undeniable terms. And God will hold everyone accountable for that. And Romans 1 deals with that very, very issue. Now, by the way, you should understand that it's only in recent years that science has taken an anti-God posture. That's something we sort of think of scientists as atheists and agnostics and and non-Christians. That's only in the recent years. That's not true in the past. One of the greatest mathematicians and astronomers, uh, Johannes Kepler, uh, lived in 1571 to uh, 1630. He saw God as the divine mathematician whose mind could be discovered in, in the precise mechanics of the universe. That's the way he saw it. Also probably one of the greatest minds ever to walk the planet Earth, Sir Isaac Newton, 1643 to 1727. He saw God as the divine presence who set the universe in motion. Quote, this most beautiful system of the sun, planet, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of intelligent and powerful being, capital B. Newton, by the way, also wrote over a million words of biblical commentaries on Revelation and Daniel and other books. And uh, kind of interesting. No, this particular gospel that this angel is proclaiming is good news for God's people, but let me tell you, it's bad news for the ones it's addressed to, which are the earth dwellers. Judgment is come. Fear God. This is the final call, as you'll see as the coming verses go on, because now we keep moving. Verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the first mention in the book of Revelation of Babylon. Great mystery Babylon. There are two chapters forthcoming, chapters 17 and 18, that will double back and focus on this particular issue. Babylon was Satan's headquarters from the beginning when Nimrod first created Babel and it becomes the fountainhead of all false religions. This is fallen, is fallen phrase may sound strange to you, but those of you that know your Old Testament, it will ring familiar from Jeremiah 51, verses 6, 8, and 9, where it speaks of Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In Genesis 41, you may recall that 
Um, Joseph pointed out that when something happens twice, it implies that it's going to happen very quickly. And that seems to be an uh, idiomatic pattern here. What it really says is, uh, fell, fell, in the uh, prophetic era's tense. In other words, it's the way we would say it in our vernacular, it's history. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but it's history, if you follow me. And uh, it's coming. Now, um, it's interesting to realize that many people are confused about Babylon. And I, I will we'll devote two, uh, you know, those two chapters, 17 and 18, we'll get into that. But Babylon has never been destroyed the way the Bible predicts. In um, uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51, it describes the destruction of Babylon. Many people have been told or taught, in fact, there are many Bible helps that will tell you, well, that happened in 539 B.C. when Persia conquered Babylon. That's not true. Persia conquered Babylon without a battle. They made it a secondary capital. It was not destroyed. It was taken over by the Persians. Babylon was never destroyed the way the Bible describes. If you read those passages carefully, you'll discover that they're destroyed. And what it's talking about, by the way, is the city on the banks of the Euphrates, the pride of the Chaldeans. We're not talking about an allegory here. We're talking about a literal city. It is destroyed, so it'll be never again inhabited. The town of Hilla, the site of Babylon, has been, been occupied continually since those days of Nebuchadnezzar, the days of the Persians, the days of when Alexander the Great made it his capital. So for centuries it endured. It finally atrophied to irrelevance in a sense, but we know from the scripture that if God says it's going to be destroyed the way it, he describes it, hailstones of fire and all that business, that that's going to happen. In order for that to happen, it has yet to reemerge on the world scene. It's beginning. Two weeks ago, Saddam Hussein had major, major affairs of state in the city of Babylon. And so we'll talk more about that when we get to Revelation 17 and 18. There is a classic book that you may want for your library. It's a classic from way, way back by Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons. It's called that way because on the one hand, he takes historical Babylon as a way to understand what the future Babylon is to look like spiritually. And some of the things in the book are quite argumentative, and yet it is a classic, and you'll find it often referenced. We also have a briefing package. Uh, where we try to summarize everything we think we know about uh, the, the mystery of Babylon in, in, in these terms. And we'll be taking that up when it comes up. Verse 9. We now have the third angel, and we're going to see fury coming here on the beast worshippers. Remember the beast of Revelation 13, both of them. Well, verse 9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's a fatal choice. Now I want you to notice this, it doesn't happen by taking a credit card, even though it may be put under your skin. It's not that simple. It's those who take his mark and they worship the beast and his image. This event that is so much talked about is an overt, deliberate, dis irreversible decision to worship the enemy of God, who is the, the, then on the scene and, and rising to popularity. So uh, many of the things we see, whether it be barcodes or smart cards or injectable circuits under skins, may set the stage for the technology to make this happen, but don't be confused. There's a specific political commitment as well as an economic uh, issue here. So, uh, but it's interesting that this is uh, big bad news. There's lots of things you can do to stumble and, and, and uh, get into trouble that, uh, that is, 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 can be repented of and uh, cleansed of. This appears in the Scripture to be one of those steps that if you cross this, you are, it's over. If any man worship the beast in his image, receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Whew. I want you to get used to that idiom, the wine of the wrath of wrath. We don't think of his wrath as wine, but the idiom, it's like uh, that's God's wrath being poured out. And uh, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Now, I don't believe any of this involves the church. Church is out of here from chapter 4, verse 1 on, and it's, uh, uh, the church has already been redeemed. I think this business, Matthew 24, verse 13, enduring unto the end, is addressed to this group. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. The heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. And uh, on the one hand, we, uh, we take a certain relief because this is addressed to people that will be in that period if you're in Christ. I believe that Paul teaches very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, there's an event that precedes all of this, but we've already talked about that. One of the things that comes up here, though, and it's a very, very disturbing concept, I don't think anyone will argue it, and yet we have a tough time really embracing it. And that's the idea that this punishment is eternal. 
Uh, most of us uh, welcome the everlasting, uh, the ability to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, through eternity. Most of us are not really willing to look in the eye this doctrine of eternal punishment. And uh, yet that the Scripture clearly teaches that, both Old and New Testament, especially in the New Testament. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's eternal. This term, ages of ages, somebody says, well, that doesn't mean forever. Yes, it does. It's 12 times in the New Testament, eight times. It speaks of the glory of, of uh, the Father and of Christ. That's certainly eternal. Three times the duration of punishment of the devil and his people. And once, that is here, for people who insist upon following him. That's what's in focus here. Now, the word fire here... In, in these passages, I believe, is not symbolic. Matthew 13 implies it's very, very literal. Matthew 13, verses 36 through 42. Now, this literalness of hell, or read more precisely, Gehenna, is a very serious issue, issue of course. And uh, it's important to understand God is not going to mix mercy with this judgment. Often the things we see are God-tempered with mercy. In this case, it's not. It's His fury, it's His judgment. Psalm 75, verse 8, Habakkuk 3, 2, and other places. Now, this is all a foreshadowing of chapters 15 and 16. There are seven bowls of this wrath to be poured out. This is all sort of a warm-up, if you will. And uh, we don't like the concept of tor eternal torment. But we're dealing here with holy love. Both terms are important. The love we can embrace. The word holy, though, we don't really understand, but it's paramount. We're dealing with true righteousness. That's the issue. The time to deal with all this is now, not then. Then it's going to be too late. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go to verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse 12 stuck in there is sort of a breather, sort of an encouragement with all this heaviness. But verse 13 continues with a fourth angel, apparently. It just says a voice, but I suspect from the structure of the text, I'm among those that infer that this is a fourth angel. That would make seven in the total group. But in any case, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Now, this is probably echoes in a sense, it echoes what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. You might pop over with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. And we'll just pick a few verses to get the flavor of this. Verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So you can see where Paul's at. He's perfectly willing to live for Christ, but, uh, but when he dies, that's a step forward. He's excited about that. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet that I, I, I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having desired to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. In other words... Uh, Paul was not afraid of death. In fact, he favored it. And he goes on to, to, to explain that position. And that's sort of the spirit here. But there's a strange thing getting back to Revelation 14, verse 13. There's a strange assurance that goes on here. It says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. In other words, from now on. Why, at this stage in the book, would an angel encourage the faithful not to be concerned about dying from this point forward. If the rapture of the church was yet coming, that would be unnecessary. If you stop and think about it, this assurance here is another one of the many, many reasons we recognize that the rapture's already taken place. And if the rapture's already taken place, it's understandable why they'd want that assurance. True believers have been caught up some time ago. This is exactly the problem that the Thessalonian church had. Paul was there for a few weeks. New believers, new church planted. He went on. By the time he gets to Athens, he finds out that they, they, you know, they're all upset. Why are they upset? Because they think they've missed the rapture. Why? Because up till then, the persecution of the early church had been from the Jewish community. The Jewish leadership resented the... I mean, they were, they were the source of the antagonism to the early church in a very, very early period. But about this time is when Nero, the emperor of the world, started persecuting Christians. And these persecutions had started at that time. And they were horrible. He would illuminate his garden parties with burning bodies. I mean, it was a wild time. And the Thessalonian church were really upset because they thought... He was the Antichrist, and they had missed the rapture. They're really upset. And that's why Paul writes 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians had introduced him to the concept of, you know, reminded him of the rapture and all that, 1 Thessalonians 4. But between 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, 
and the second letter, there's a forgery being circulated. Paul says, don't be so upset by even as a letter apparently from us. Are you so, you don't be so soon troubled. And he goes on, 2 Thessalonians 2 is a rebuttal to that forgery. Now to understand that whole picture, you need to understand what's going on. We need to understand that the Thessalonian church was upset because they had in their minds that either they'd missed the rapture or that Paul had mistaught them. Because apparently the tribulations already started. They did not expect to be in it. And it's a demonstration that Paul had taught them a pre-trib position, which he reconfirms in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians 2, if you study it very carefully. And we have a, a, I encourage you to get those commentaries and notes on that, or get the From Here to Eternity package, whatever, uh, do some homework on that, because it's very important to understand. It's interesting here that in verse 13, often overlooked by many people, is another uh, uh, suggestion or hint or, or indication that the rapture apparently has already passed. That's why they're concerned. That's why this assurance is so important. Moving on, though. Verse 14 starts to give us a preview of Armageddon. And I looked and behold a white cloud. What could that cloud be? Who knows what the word is? Do we know what the, the white, what, what is this cloud? We see in the scripture a cloud. Huh? Shekinah or Shekinah, you bet. Uh, Shekinah glory. Uh, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like, the, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And this is the same thing that's described in Matthew 24, verse 30. Also, we're going to see it in Revelation 19, verse 15. It was also mentioned in Jeremiah 25, 20. These are all echoes of the same thing. This, another study that you can sort of do on the side here is do a study of the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, as we sometimes say. Uh, this, of course, in the Old Testament was the cloud that followed them through the wilderness, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in Exodus 13 and 14 and so forth. This was also associated with the manna in Exodus 16. In Exodus 19, it's associated with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and also in Exodus 24. And when the law was given the second time, if you recall, remember Charlton Heston broke the first couple of them, you remember? Well, he got another set in uh, Exodus 34. And the Shekinah glory is there. And you want to see if you're listening. Okay, good. It was associated with the tabernacle, Exodus 40, the mercy seat. It hovered, actually, it actually indwelt the tabernacle. It, this cloud enters and, and hovers over the, 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 uh, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. In, uh, and that's uh, described in Numbers 9. It was there when the 70 elders were chosen by Moses in Numbers 11. And of course, it's associated with Solomon, the second temple, and the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the temple, in 1 Kings 8, and so on. And uh, it leaves the temple visibly. Ezekiel describes that in chapter 9, 10, and 11. And in the millennium, it'll, it'll come again, but never to be removed. In uh, Ezekiel uh, 43, Daniel 7, etc. In the New Testament, it shows up. Remember, Mary was overshadowed by the Shekinah in uh, Luke 1, verse 35. The Shekinah is also visible in the, flo in the, the flocks uh, and the shepherds in Luke 2. It was there at the Transfiguration, you may recall, in Matthew 17, 1 Peter 1, and so forth. And, at the, of course, it's there at the Ascension. For, you know, there wasn't a cloud, it was a very specific cloud. In Ascension, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And I believe it's associated with the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And will be, of course, associated with the return of Jesus Christ, uh, as we've seen in several of the scriptures. This idea of a sickle, by the way, occurs 12 times in the scriptures, 7 times just in this section alone. The word sharp occurs seven times in Revelation, four times just in this, in this chapter, the sharp sickle. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Or in fact, actually overripe is the term. This is the harvest, that I believe, of the, uh, that's idiomatically like the wheat that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, Luke 3. And so forth, all Joel, also Joel chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. We use the term harvest sometimes, not unjustifiably, but the harvest isn't really our job. We're here to sow. Jesus will harvest. He will harvest the fruits of what we sow. It's not your job to save people. It's your job to be a witness to them. It's your job to declare the Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to take it from there. And uh, uh, we sometimes forget that in our zeal or enthusiasm or what have you. Uh, we are here to sow. The real harvest is what the Lord does. Uh, even in terms of the church. Many churches have programs and drives and so forth. Uh, that's not what Acts, the last verse of Acts chapter 2. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 
the Lord's job. Our job is to sow. We are the sowers, not the harvesters. The harvest will come. That's what's happening here. And uh, the harvest is at the end of the world. Jesus says that in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and 36 through 43, and so on. Verse 16, And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. In other words, the harvest is thus gathered. Verse 17, Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. Now we're going to see another harvest. This one's different. One of the things you miss, unless you're reading carefully, is one harvest has sort of idiomatically is like wheat. That's what we've talked about. There's also a harvest of grapes. Different deal. Let's watch this carefully. Verse 18, Another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire, Uh and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Different deal here. See, the harvest of verses 17 through 20 is of of grapes, not wheat, as 14 through 16. And uh, see, in the early ones, the angels are separating the tares from the wheat when they harvest. That's not what's going on here. This is a little different. And Joel chapter 3, and in the interest of time, we're running late, so I won't go into it. Joel 3, Isaiah 63, first six verses. We'll be talking about them later, too. Zechariah 14, first three verses are all involved here. And Isaiah 34, first three verses in some of that passage, Isaiah 34, deals with this. I don't believe this is for the church where we are long previously um, gathered. This is a climactic thing at the end. Verse 19, The angel thrust in a sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Different harvest here. And we're going to see, that this is all getting ready for the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16. Now you should understand there's different vines in the scripture. The grape harvest is often used having to do with the day of the Lord, like in Joel 3 and so on. Israel has also spoken of God's vine planted in the land to bear fruit for God's glory, but failed and had to be cut down in Psalm 80, verse 8 through 16, Isaiah 5, and Matthew 21, and elsewhere. And of course, don't confuse this with Jesus Christ being the true vine, and that's a whole other use of that idiom, where the believers are his branches. I am the vine, ye are the branches, the one plus six making the seven completeness, and that's also represented in the menorah, which is in the tabernacle. And, and if we had an altar up here, we'd have the whole word of God, and probably have a menorah on here, being the light of the world, the vine, and so forth, as an idiom that Jesus applied to himself. But moving on to verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by a space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. The winepress was trodden outside the city, in other words, and blood came out of the winepress. This is an idiom of judgment, God's wrath. We're going to see, this is all a preview of what's coming. This is sort of a glimpse of the coming couple of chapters. Now, the blood is four feet deep for, essentially, 180 miles. Now, is this idiomatic or is this literal? It's hard to visualize it being anything but literal. Blood is to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That happens to be the distance between Megiddo and Basra, where all the nations of the earth are going to come together for war for this horrendous mess that we glibly call the Battle of Armageddon. That'll show up shortly. This is a preview. We'll see more of this. We'll see it climax in chapter 19. Now, by the way, you know, this, we, th- we tend to think of nuclear weapons, and I think Ezekiel 38 and all that does, but I think that precedes us by at least seven years. But it's interesting, most of us, of course, are, are shocked at the 70,000 that were extinguished at Hiroshima. But we fail to realize that not many months earlier, 125,000 perished in Iwo Jima. It's interesting that uh, we also forget about the Civil War, which was so vast and so terrible that it consumed more American lives than World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. And it used only bayonets, firearms, and cannonballs. So man's ability to do this is obviously not limited to advanced technology, but we've gotten very effective and very efficient with more advanced ways of doing this thing, so we'll see about this. And of course, by the way, Psalm 45 also predicts a lot of this. Now as we stand back and watch all of this, of course, it's kind of strange because as we watch Israel... Here's Israel, the centerpiece of God's plan, and they don't even believe their own scriptures. How ironic it really is that most Jews are atheists. Now, that's actually a contradiction. I was riding on a plane with a Jewish attorney. He called himself an agnostic Jew, and I I kidded him. I said that I'm more Jewish than you are, in a sense. We talked. He's pretty sophisticated. He says, Chuck, you have to understand what an agnostic Jew is. An agnostic Jew is one who 
knows what the God he doesn't believe in requires of him. <laughs> but it's interesting that the, the average Jew today denies the God of the Old Testament and the, the relevance of scriptures to their own destiny. They give some lip service to it, but all in all, it's a, it's a tragic mess. The wine pressing we're seeing about here is a judgment for apostasy, which Jeremiah 30 calls the time of Jacob's trouble. The Old Testament label for the Great Tribulation is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's worldwide, but one of its primary missions is to, is to uh, purge Israel. Into, uh, uh, and so that's what we, did, we dealt with that in chapter 12 of Revelation, which uh, elaborates that. Now, this whole business of God's judgment is something that uh, we need to make no apology for, although it's a difficult area to deal with. Sin is an awful thing. You and I probably have only the slightest glimmer of just how awful it is. Sin is in the world. And we're beginning, I think, as we look at the world more realistically, to begin to realize that even in our blessed land, we're seeing it uh, increasingly visible, increasingly dominating our lives. Now, you and I are sinners. And the only remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. And this judgment that we're looking here, previewing here in chapter 14, we're going to see more unfold in the next two chapters, is a judgment for a Christ-rejecting world. Now, by the way, many people, there are many people that think the church is going to go through this period. And I personally believe that those that hold that view understand neither the, the uh, true nature of the church and the true nature of the tribulation. When you understand both of those together, uh, I think uh, you, you realize they're underestimating both, if you will. Now, there's a morning coming. There's a very exciting dawn coming in chapters uh, 19, 20, and 21. 22. It's, it's coming. But before that morning dawns, it's going to get darker, much darker. And this chapter is really just a prelude uh, to the chapters 15 and 16 that we'll take together next time. We'll take the two together and deal with these seven bowls. But I'd like to talk a little bit about, just before we leave, on this, the real issue that is before all of us. Most of the things we talk about here, the good news is that it's for those people. You know, it reminds me that what the doctor said to his patient, it could be worse, it could be me, you know. So, but this whole concept of salvation that we talk so much about in biblical circles presupposes a damnation. And we don't like to talk about that. And in order to escape danger, you have to believe that it exists. Or you won't escape it. Now, there's no error that we can make that's probably greater than universalism. Because it blots out the whole attribute of retributive justice. It transmutes sin into misfortune. It turns all suffering into chastisement. It relegates the sacrifice of Christ into simply moral significance. And it makes it a debt due man rather than an unmerited boon from God. Now, throughout the Bible, we see God's love and His grace freely available to anyone that would receive it. Uh, the entire record of the Scripture for the previous 65 books and on is a record of the extremes that God has gone to to make His grace and mercy available to man in many, many ways, many ways, always through, of course, the cross, but still offered in so many ways. He is desperately trying for you and I to avoid the consequences of our unfallen state. Now, people respond, no, God, I don't want to love you. I want to run things my own way. What are his alternatives? What are God's alternatives to people who just choose of their own volition to ignore him, to refuse him? He's got three choices. His first choice is he can indulge it. He can allow it to go on forever. But in that case, all cruelty, injustice, hatred, pain, and death that now prevails on the earth will go on forever. I don't think God wants that, and I know you and I don't either. Well, there's a second alternative. God can force man to obey him. He could control the human race as if it was an assemblage of automata or robots. However, removing our free will also makes it impossible for us to love him. That has to be our capacity to love involves our freedom to have that choice. Love cannot be forced, contradiction in terms. So that really leaves us with his only real choice, the third choice. And that is, there will be a time when he will say enough's enough, and he will simply withdraw himself from those who refuse his love. It's that simple. He's going to let them have their own way forever, forever. Now, since God is necessary for our existence... 
The decision to reject God is a decision to plunge ourselves into the most terrible sense of loneliness and isolation that a human can know. I don't think you and I have the capacity to understand what that loneliness and isolation really can mean because you and I have only known an existence in which we are, in some sense at least, in the presence of God. To endure such a state eternally without hope. Underline those words. You and I probably have a hard time visualizing a circumstance without hope. No matter how desperate, we always cling to the concept of of hope. There is a concept of physical death, which is simply the separation of the soul and the body. Physical death involves a separation of the soul and the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And you and I are incapable of imagining what that means. And that's why Jesus uses all these idioms to try to communicate in terms that you and I can understand what that means. Because you see, the soul, you and I, is software, not hardware. It has no time. It has no mass, therefore it has no time. It's eternal. And that's not good news for the unsaved. You and I are eternal, and that's the problem. We think of time in many ways, but it's erroneous if we divorce it from the concept of mass and physical existence. Separate yourself from physical existence and you are eternal. You'll either be eternal in the presence of God, if you've accepted his love and love him in return, or you'll be denied that presence. For how long? Forever. Now, because of this, ultimately, it's we ourselves who choose whether or not God will judge us. It's we ourselves who will either accept or refuse His grace, His love, and His forgiveness. And it is we ourselves who choose everlasting life or everlasting death. We love to dwell on the positive, and yet we need to look right in the eye, so to speak, what we're really talking about. And because they're two sides of the same coin, to use our vernacular. A solemn occasion happens to be Yom Kippur, interestingly enough, tonight. It's also been the occasion that we've had sort of a sweeping overview of the next couple of chapters that are coming. It's also time for us, perhaps, to recognize the solemnity and the seriousness of what it's all about. That's why God himself became man and dwelt among us. He didn't come for a manger, he came for a cross. And from before Adam was created, Jesus made the commitment to the Father that he would write us a love letter in blood on a wooden cross that was finally erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. It's very solemn, very serious. Jesus prayed three times in desperation. If there be any other way, let's go that way. Nevertheless, Father, not my will but thine be done. He knew what he was up against. The only time he used the term, he didn't call him Father, he called him my God, was from the cross, when he for the first time throughout eternity past was separated. He was separated from God the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A scream of agony on your behalf and mine. So he's paid the price, giving God the ability without violating his holiness to allow you and I to be with him throughout eternity by imputing to us his righteousness. He knew man would get into a predicament that only the death of God himself would extricate him from that mess as an opportunity to demonstrate what infinite love really is and what a token response we at best can give him. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Heavy stuff. The most important decision of your life is what you're going to do with God's love. What are you going to do about Jesus Christ? And I'm going to encourage you not to leave this room until you're certain of where you stand with Jesus Christ. You can, in the privacy of your own will, as we gather here tonight, seal your eternity by handing it back to Him. Those of you that want to come forward, we can pray together afterwards. That's fine. I'd be glad to do that. Those of you that want to come forward uh, after we uh, close in prayer, be glad to be up here. Let's forego questions tonight. Often there's a crowd with questions. Those of you that would like to come forward just for prayer, there will be elders here. Olive Ray and Bob and the gang, you know, join me here. Those that would like to come forward, just some special prayer or recommitment, we'll be here to do that on a personal basis up front. But those, I encourage you, whether you come forward or not, in the privacy of your own prayer time as we close, is to reconfirm your position before the throne of God. 
Because there's nothing more serious on his mind than your dealing with this issue tonight, right now. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you soberly in awe of who you are. And we recognize, Father, as you have declared that the day will come when it's over. The day will come when your judgment, your wrath, will be poured out on a rebellious earth. And that the rule of man, in all its confusion and error and cruelty and hatred, will be over. And yet, Father, we also come before your throne in unspeakable gratitude for the extremes that you have gone to, that your love and your mercy and your forgiveness might be ours and that they're available simply for the asking. So, Father, we come before your throne right now, indeed, committing and recommitting ourselves before your throne, acknowledging that we indeed are sinners, that we indeed have failed to obey your laws, to be obedient to your word. We have, in fact, in our many, many ways, rejected you, ignored you, rebelled against you, we recognize, Father, that despite our own standards, that we don't come close to the standards that you've expressed. So, Father, we just acknowledge that need and look to you and look to the redemption you've provided in Jesus Christ. We recognize, Father, that you have anticipated this frailty, our fallen state, and have made available through the gift of your Son our redemption in him. So, Father, we just claim that this evening. We pray collectively for those of us that have made that commitment in the past. We recommit it to you right now. For any among us, Father, that have yet to do that, we just pray, Father, you give them no peace until indeed they rest in you. We pray, Father, that right now in their own words, in the privacy of their own heart, they would just commit themselves to you in this manner, this night. That none would leave this room without the assurance that they indeed are born again into the family of God. We also pray, Father, that you would lead such to share that commitment with anyone they trust spiritually and go forth declaring the redemption that's available in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, you would also, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, draw all of us, not only them, but all of us, into an increased appetite and hunger for your word, that we might each grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And, Father, we come before you with these things on this night of all nights the night in which we, in a sense, celebrate the atonement you've made for us. Not in tabernacles or temples made with hands, but on that cross that was erected in Judea so long ago. So we come before you, Father, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and in whose name we commit ourselves. This night.